on a day like this. I want us to focus our attention for just a few moments on 1 Peter chapter 1. You've already heard it read. And I really want to focus on one specific phrase. Peter wrote that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope. As our choir kind of settles in and makes their way, let me just tell you what Peter is doing here. Peter is bringing together the glorious truth of the resurrection and the actual experience of life. Let me say that again. He's bringing together the glorious truth of the resurrection and the actual experience of life. Because he's doing this, we need to see its importance. And some of you may have missed this because some of you are here, you got all dressed up. Maybe you're here because somebody made you come. Maybe you're here because you just said, well, I just need to go to church somewhere. You wanted to worship with family. Maybe you had folks that came from out of town. I, I don't know why all of us are here today, but can I just say to you that, that some of you are saying, okay, we've heard it said over and over and over again. Jesus is alive. He's risen from the dead. He is now alive. He was dead and he's alive and that's great for him but what does that mean for me and, and you might not be honest enough to say that but maybe you've thought it maybe in your heart and in your mind you've said you know what is what is the difference that the resurrection really actually makes in my own life today or does it make a difference I mean okay pastor I, I'm busy Pastor, I'm raising a family, or I'm a student in school. I have a full schedule. I have a lot of responsibilities. I've got tons and tons of pressure. I've got kids and grandkids and family and stress and bills. And I hear that Christ is raised, but what does that have to do with me? Well, Peter is writing to people who have found that the resurrection was the most important thing in their world. And we'll talk about these people at great length this morning because I want you to see the significance of their lives and ours. He lists out the places where they live. If you were to go back to the, the earliest uh, part of this chapter, 1 Peter 1, you would see he, he simply says, this is a letter from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners. They're living scattered out through provinces all over Rome. They're living in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Bithynia. And he's writing to real people. I mean, I want you to hear this. If you were to go door to door in Pontus or in Cappadocia or Galatia, you could knock on doors. These were real people with real addresses. They actually lived lives. They had children and they had jobs and they had responsibilities. But when we think about what Peter says about them, I begin to say, I want to be more like them. Now, we'll talk about their lot in life, and maybe you'll ask that question too. Do I really want to be like them? Well, one of the things that I noticed very quickly, and, and Pastor Joe read this a moment ago in verse 8, it says something powerful. He says, you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. He says, and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The joy that you have goes so far beyond words. They're, they're simply not words that can be put together. And he doesn't say to them, you should have that kind of joy. He says, you do have that kind of joy. In fact, let's just look at verse 8. If you have a copy of God's Word in front of you, we'll read the whole verse in context. He says, you love Him even though you've never seen Him. 
Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. Think about this with me. Peter had seen Jesus. He had walked with him for three years. He had invested time with him. They've never seen Jesus. They have lived not in Nazareth or Capernaum, but in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia. They've been scattered out. They didn't walk with Jesus. So in that respect, they're just like you and me. They've eye to eye never seen Jesus Christ and yet he writes to them and he says you've never seen him but you love him you've never seen him but you have confidence in him you never seen him but you believe him and because you love him and you uh, have confidence in him and you believe in him you have joy that in is inexpressible so here's my question pastor who were these people why did they have such incredible joy? I mean, what was it about their life? Were they living the good life? Were they playing golf on the Mediterranean? I mean, did they have some special uh, circumstance, a windfall that came? Did they strike oil somewhere and life is just good for them? Why would Peter say about these people who had never seen the Lord that they have marvelous, inexpressible, glorious joy? Well, that was one of the questions that we need to answer, and I think we'll begin to see some things in their lives that go straight to the contrary. If you look at verse 6, it says that they were enduring trials. In fact, the word, the language, the picture there is you are grieving in trial, that you have lost, that you have mourned. Anybody in here facing difficulties these days of any sort at all? This is audience participation time. Okay, those of you that did not raise your hand are either having a Prozac moment or you're not listening to me, or you're just in denial. Your head is in the sand. Life is hard. Would you agree with that? Life can be difficult, and life can throw you curveballs. Life can bring to you difficulty. You can be rocking along one day and everything's fine, and then all of a sudden you get knocked off center. Well, these people have been knocked off center for a while. You see, Roman persecution had happened when people said they believed in Jesus. Primarily, it was because of the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. And they began to rise up in great numbers. And Rome didn't like it. Rome was nervous about it. So Rome scattered them out with incredible persecution. And these people that are receiving this letter are receiving it about 30 years after the resurrection. They've been living a whole generation, not at home, but as foreigners. Imagine if some invading country came in and pressured you out of your home, out of your comfort zone, and you had to flee to the hills somewhere to get away from that kind of persecution. That's the sort of trial. He's not saying they've been cut off in traffic or they've you know, got a hangnail, or they're experiencing some, uh, you know, difficulty that they need a safe place for. No, these people have been brutalized, and yet he describes them with terms like these, you live with inexpressible joy. So how is it that they can live their lives under incredible pain, and yet with a sense of inexpressible joy? Well, it's written right here in the text. But the question that I want to ask you very simply is this. Is there anything in your life that corresponds to theirs? Is there anything in your life that looks like the lives of these people? Because i just got to be honest with you. Lean in for a second, if you will. Everybody lean in a little. I just want you to know this. As I read this text, I read about these people. I said, I want what they've got. I want a little more of that. If we could bottle some inexpressible joy, 
When's the last time you experienced inexpressible joy? And yet I see their circumstance and I begin to wonder, why is it that we don't have today inexpressible joy? You see, here's what I'm determined to, to, to find out. Why is it that we don't have the same fervor in a belief that Jesus is risen? And oftentimes, I think the answer is simply this, that we in church get so used to living at such a, a low level of spiritual life, when we read about people like this who had great love and are filled with joy and filled with faith, it's hard to relate and take it seriously. Yeah, pastor, that's just a Bible story. Peter was just writing to people that, that don't understand real life. No, I'm afraid they understood real life far more than we can comprehend. What we need to see is that Peter is writing to real people that this letter would not have been written had there not been people in Pontus and Cappadocia and Galatia and Bithynia. Peter's writing to real people who would say, Yes, if they were here this morning, if we could interview these people that he's writing to, they would say, yes, it is true. I have real joy that cannot be put into words. And if it's true, and it is, then the question becomes, if inexpressible joy was possible for them, pastor, is it possible for us today? Can we experience that kind of joy? What happened to these people? What accounted for their remarkable joy? And I believe very simply that the answer to that all rests in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His resurrection is at the center and the source. And if you have your Bible open, then you'll see it in our text. Because the Bible says very pointedly this in verse 3. That they had discovered a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Your Bible might say a confident expectation. But they have experienced living hope. Now, you might ask, Pastor, why would he speak of living hope? Why wouldn't he just speak of hope? And I believe the reason why is because we use that word so flippantly. When we begin to think about hope in our world and in our lives, living hope is uniquely different. Living hope is hope that comes from a living person. It's in a living person. That's why I mentioned it. You see, worldly hope is nothing more than a desire for some future thing, and we're not certain we're going to attain it. We're uncertain of it. It's sort of a cross your fingers and be optimistic and a glass half full mindset. Boy, I hope this is going to come true. I hope the Eagles win their game. I hope that it won't rain on that day. I hope that my refund check will come in. I hope that that bill won't come in. I hope. And we have this worldly sense of hope. But what will give you inexpressible joy is not crossing your fingers and wishfully thinking that something might or might not happen. What will give you inexpressible joy is living hope. And living hope is very simply this. It's that hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here's what biblical hope is. It is a confident expectation of full assurance that God is going to do good to us in the future. Confident expectation. Regardless of their current circumstance, regardless of your current circumstance, you might be facing difficulty, but you can, in the midst of difficult times, have inexpressible joy. How? Through the living hope that is birthed in our hearts because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, 
Why did it come to them? I mean, there are lots of people living in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia. Why did they experience it? Were these the best of the best? Were these the the most moral people in all of those lands? Well, again, if you were to go with me to those areas, you would determine there were a whole lot of people that did not have inexpressible joy. I think it's important for us to see that because in your world, maybe you've looked to other Christians and you look at your neighbor or you look at a friend and and your friend is constantly hounding you and inviting you to church and you look at their life and say, they gossip just like everybody else. You look at that neighbor and you say, their life is just as frustrated and complex as my life. Why do I want what they've got? Well, I think I need to speak to both groups. If you're looking at people, you're going to be disappointed. If you'll look to Christ for your living hope, you'll never be disappointed. And on the flip side, if you are in Christ, then you better begin to recognize that the way that you express your life better be surrendered to Christ because it matters to those that are around you. There were people in these regions that didn't have inexpressible joy. They didn't have a living hope. How did it come to these? Well, here's how. They had experienced a new birth. They had discovered a new birth, if you will. They had experienced new birth by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, that's a strange, strange bit of language. What do you mean they've been born again? What does it mean to have a new birth? Well, the new birth is very simple, and I want to explain this to you this morning. The new birth in Jesus Christ is a change of mind and heart and will that is brought about by God. Think about this. The Bible says he caused us to be born again. And this new birth is a change in all of these areas. When someone is born again, they have a change of mind. That means, let me give you a couple of words. Their attention and the alignment of their life is redirected toward Christ. Your attention is changed. You see, being convinced that Jesus is alive, you begin to take him at his word, and you begin to take his word into your life as truth. Some of you are living your life as people of the eye. I've said this often over the last several months, not as people of the ear. People of the ear hear what God has to say, and they live their life that way. They say, I want to live my life according to what God says, because everything that God has said would happen has happened. He promised that he would rise from the dead, and he did. There are eyewitness accounts of this. The resurrection of Christ is uh, one of the most attested facts that you will find. It holds water. You can go back and look at the record. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then nothing matters. I mean, if, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we ought to sell this place, and we ought to leave, and I'll not ever put another bow tie on. I put one bow tie a year on. I've already been asked about my bow tie. No, it does not spin, okay? It does not. I've had several people ask me, thank you very much, what circus did you rob to get your bow tie? I like my tie. I'll go back to something else next week, but I wear one bow tie a year. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then nothing in life matters. You can steal from anybody you want to steal from. You ought to run off to Vegas, live it up with wine, women, and song, party until everything is done, cash in your chips and quit. But Jesus did rise from the dead. And if Jesus is raised, then nothing else matters. It's the single most important thing you can consider because when you leave this life, you will face the truth of what he is 
determined and that all of us will live eternally somewhere and you and I need to face the facts and look at the evidence and consider it that's what happened to them God had caused them to be born again a change of mind the alignment of their life and their attention was focused on him it's also a change of heart that means that their affections are changed and their attitude is changed your affections are directed toward God. You love Him. And the evidence of that is that you love His people. Sins that you used to enjoy, you begin to hate. You can't tolerate them in your life. It doesn't mean that these people were perfect, but it means that they were set on a new course. And when somebody is born again, they have a change of mind and a change of heart. They begin to say, I don't want those things that are displeasing to God in my life. It changes their affections. It changes their attitude. And then thirdly, it's a change of will. A change of will. The great purpose of your life becomes a driving desire to please God. I would use this word, allegiance. You see, when I trusted Jesus Christ, I was 17. And at 17, my life was aimless and hopeless. I was religious but lost. I was religious but empty. And many of you would have that same experience. You've gone through the motions of religion. And in my emptiness, I cried out to God. And he caused me to be born again into a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Straight out of this text is my story. And it's your story too if you have ever been born again. You see, new birth is very simply a change of the mind, the heart, and the will. It's a change of our affection, our attention, our allegiance. It's a change moving our lives toward God. And that's what Peter told these people. He described it as a new birth, and that's what happened to them. They were filled with joy, and they were filled with faith, and they were filled with love. Well, how did they have it? That's then the next question. If they've got inexpressible joy, and it came because they had experienced new birth, how did they come to this place of new birth? Well, I'm glad you asked. Our text answers that very pointedly. Because of God's great mercy. According to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope. And all of this was through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. What is mercy? Mercy is kindness. It's pity or compassion. It means this, here is God Almighty and he has the heart of a father. And as a father's heart would break, as a father's eyes would weep, as a father would be moved to action on behalf of his children, God has seen our plight and taken pity on us, had mercy on us, and his mercy led us to this place of him, causing us to be born again. How? Through the resurrection. One cool thing that I want you to note here is that Peter didn't say this has happened to you. He said God has done this for us. Peter put himself there. They had never seen God, uh, Jesus, and, and yet Peter had. He includes himself. He has caused us. This happened for us. You needed this. No, we needed this. And he's done it for us. Think about this. Who's writing here? Bold, brash, arrogant Peter. Peter who would pull out a sword to defend Jesus and cut off a man's ear trying to cut off his head. He was zealous for following Christ. He was passionate about his defense of Christ. And yet, in the same vein, we see him scared and running, denying Christ. Peter got caught up in his own sense of failure. And he was broken over it. And now he's broken over, but Jesus is dead. 
And you can't say I'm sorry to a person who is dead. And a dead person can't offer forgiveness. They're in no position. But praise God, Jesus rose from the dead. And Peter came to Jesus in repentance. And Jesus forgave him. And he said, Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. And this is my story is what he's saying to them. Peter's saying, folks, this is love. Love is that God has caused all of us to be born again into a living hope, to have inexpressible joy, to be filled with hope, filled with faith, filled with love, even though we've never seen him. And Peter had seen him, but he said, this is what he did for us. He's alive and he can forgive you today. As we think about the forgiveness of God, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And that's been my experience, and I pray it's been yours too. But there's more. You see, as we look forward, it says in verse 4, because of the resurrection, you've been brought into an inheritance. Number three, I want you to see this. They, They were brought into an inheritance. They experienced living hope. They were given new birth. And now they have an inheritance. Now, would you say that an inheritance is a good thing? That is not a trick question. Would you say an inheritance is a good thing? Pastor, it depends. It depends on the one who's giving it. I read a story this week by Jerry Bridges, and he was just telling the account of an inheritance that he got from his mother-in-law. She gave them a house. They didn't even know she owned the house. It was in a remote part of the country. Nobody had been living in this. So you say, oh, it was unused. Well, no, that just means it was unoccupied, at least by humans. He said there were all kinds of critters that had taken up residence in this glorious house that his mother-in-law left to him. And he said, and by the way, there were foundation issues, and there were plumbing issues, and there were electrical issues. And he said, $45,000 later, we got the house ready to put on the market. And he said, we sold it for a whopping $43,000. Thanks, Mom. Not a very good inheritance. But the Bible says that God has brought us to an inheritance in Him. And I want you to see something powerful because he says it's kept for us in heaven. And then he goes on and says something powerful that we need to hear. It says that you have been guarded by God. That's number four. So they had living hope, a new birth, an inheritance, and they're being guarded. It says you've been protected. You're being kept by God. And this is worth the price of admission. And we're almost to a place of wrapping up. But look at this with me. The nail-scarred hands of Jesus... In this hand, he holds in heaven an inheritance for you that cannot spoil. It will never lose its value. It will never fade in its shimmer and shine. It is gloriously, eternally, infinitely valuable. And in this hand, he holds those who have been born again. And there's coming a day when Jesus Christ takes all that is in this hand and all that is in this hand and he weds the two as he brings them together. He has kept an inheritance for you and he's kept you for an inheritance. Hallelujah to the glory of God. Oh, that ought to make us want to shout. We've heard it sung. Maybe you need to contemplate it yet again. For me, sometimes it causes me tremble 
at the glorious good news that Jesus Christ shed his blood, gave up his life, and rose victoriously for us. The word guarded is a military word. Guarded by God's power. That's what's true of you. That was what was true of them. That's why they have inexpressible joy. They have confidence and love and joy in Jesus. And it's centered around the words of Jesus when he said, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And no one can snatch them from my hand. You you see, their trials and all that they faced came against the backdrop of a risen Savior. And they are held in the hands of that Savior. And because of that, they have inexpressible joy. Look at verse 5. Peter reminds them that their salvation has already been provided. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day. You see, Jesus said to his disciples on the very last night he was with them, I'm going to prepare a place. That didn't mean that he was going to put on his golden Bob the Builder tool belt and go to heaven and build mansions for us and measure them with his wonderful silver-plated tape measure. No, he was saying the only way to prepare a place is for me to go and die and be raised again. And when he was uh, seated at the right hand of the Father, he had taken care of all that needed to be taken care of, and he promised he would come again. And he said to them, I have lived for you a perfect life. He died an atoning death. He rises from the dead and ascends to the right hand of the Father. The Savior who could shout in triumph from its cross, it is finished, offers for us salvation that is complete and accomplished. And Peter puts it in these terms. Peter says salvation is ready to be revealed. It's sort of like something with a drape over it. It's sort of like a present under the tree that's been wrapped. We know that we've already received it. We have it in our possession, but we can't fully comprehend all that God has for us. And one day it will be fully revealed. It's all there. Nothing needed to be added to what Jesus did and what he's already accomplished for people to be saved. So here is the marvelous, glorious good news of the gospel. Guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. It's already accomplished. It's done by Christ. I'm teaching a class at William Carey. It's a preaching class. I'm having a blast in there, having an interesting time with those guys. But if they were here, they would tell you that I'm breaking a cardinal rule of preaching today. Here on Easter Sunday of all day. I mean, Pastor, we got a bigger crowd than normal. You see, here's what I've been doing. I've been talking about these people. These people in Pontus, Cappadocia, Galatia, Bithynia. They were born again. They had a living hope. They had a great inheritance. They were guarded by God. Their salvation had already been accomplished. But an important rule in preaching is this. Don't talk about them then and there. Talk about us here and now. Shouldn't I be bringing this forward to our church, to our circumstance? And so I want to say this. I don't this morning want to assume that what is true of them is true of you. I don't want to assume that it's true of 
all of us. I want all of us to search ourselves today in the light of all that we have heard, which is that the distinguishing marks of people who are born again, regardless of trials and tribulations, is that we have a living hope, we have a great inheritance, we're guarded by the power of God, we have a completed salvation, and the mark of those kinds of people is that we love Christ, we have great confidence in Christ, we have faith in Christ, and we have inexpressible, distinct joy some of you are saying at this moment whatever these people had I've not got maybe you're saying well I've always considered myself a Christian but I haven't got living hope I've always considered myself to be a fine upstanding church goer But I don't have love for Christ and inexpressible joy. That doesn't describe me. If you were to say that in this moment, it would be unbelievably honest of you. And I would applaud you for that. And I would say it might very well be the next step toward an incredible breakthrough in your life. Everything that these people had was was through the risen Christ, the resurrected Savior. And that was 20 centuries ago. But you know what? Nothing's changed in those 20 centuries. He's still alive today. And he still offers living hope today. He still holds out inexpressible joy today. And I hope for you today that your heart is awakened. I hope that your heart is awakened to a greater joy and a greater love and a greater faith that you've ever known. I hope today that you will say, I want to live my days not at the lowest possible level, but with that kind of joy. I want more of what these Christians experienced in Peter's day. There are two very simple things that need to happen. How do you respond? Number one, you admit your need. You simply admit your need. You come to the place where you say, I need Christ. You see, they didn't look to themselves as a self-improvement project. They were beyond that. Their lives were a mess. Come to the risen Christ and ask him to give you that which you do not have. You tell him that your own soul soul is dull and lethargic and unresponsive to God. You ask him today to give you new life by his Holy Spirit and you ask him to forgive your sins. And he will. He promises that. How do you continue in it? Well, you admit your need and then you look to Christ. These people receive mercy from Christ and strength from Christ and confidence by being guarded in Christ and faith and love and joy. They look to the risen living Christ. And what was true of these people can be true of you today. He has not changed, he does not change, he will not change. Let me sum all this up. I know that it seems that I'm bombing the rubble, but when I walk through this text, I find myself with an overwhelming sense of gratitude. Look to Christ and his mercy will be yours. Look to Christ and the new birth will be yours, a change of mind and heart and will. Look to Christ and new living hope will be yours. Look to Christ and the unfading inheritance of God will be yours. Look to Christ and the guarding power of God will be yours. Look to Christ and the salvation that he has already completed that is ready to be revealed at the last day will be yours. Admit your need to Christ and look to Christ. That's what Christians do. Let me wrap it up by saying this. You know what happens, Brother Wes? When all those things happen to somebody, they join the choir. You know why? 
Because the praise begins. Look at verse 3. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His great mercy that we've been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, living hope. We have a priceless inheritance that is kept in heaven for you pure and undefiled, beyond the reach and change of decay. And through his faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive the salvation which is ready to be revealed on the last day. They just began praising God. I don't care what difficult circumstances come. I'm just going to praise God because he's worthy. There are believers right now in Sri Lanka who have lost their husbands or lost their wives or lost their children or lost their parents. And they're saying, even so, it is well with my soul. Because they understand in Jesus Christ, death is not the end. It's the beginning of eternal life. Today, would you admit your need and look to Christ. Let's pray. As our musicians come, we'll wrap up our time together. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that we would respond, that many would come to you by faith, that you would cause them to be born again into a living hope. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and you respond to God as you have need.